When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, welcome back to the Cowboy Stories and welcome to part two of my interview with Mike McLaughlin. If you happen to miss part one, go back and listen to that before you listen to this because we are just going to dive right in. So there we are at the R-Rose, and Cisco finally decides that – now, uh, let me explain a little bit about this place. It's The first time it was owned by American people was in 1932 when the Green Cattle Company came up out of Mexico and bought what they call the Baca Float Number no. 5, which is a Spanish land grant that was owned by the Baca family, and they owned several land grants uh, in Arizona and in New Mexico. And so the Green Cattle Company bought that land grant. How they did that exactly, I don't know how you do that, but they bought it. And so they went to running cows there. And then after the Green Cattle Company, well, then John Irwin bought the ranch and i think john irwin was an ambassador to a united states ambassador for south america or something like that anyway so he buys the the ro's the oro is actually the the brand on it and um so he hires i want to say the guy that ran it first was a guy by the name of dick jagel um, as, as I recall that, um, and so they purchased it, I think in the forties or the fifties. So it was, it was owned by the Baca family. It was owned by the green cattle company. And then John Irwin bought it. And so it's still in the Irwin family. And so in the late sixties, I think they added to the ranch what they call the west side they bought all that it might have been in the 50s but i think it was in the 60s that they bought the the west side and once they got that purchased then they were running cattle on that so that doubled the size of it and so then several years later they purchased they did some kind of a trade with the state and they purchased all of the state ground on the perimeter for two sections all the way around the west side so that it completely closed it in by two sections uh, for private ground. And so they were able to close the ROs up to public use. And so to this day, the, the RO ranch is 441 square miles inside one fence. That's cool. That was a good trade on their part. Yeah, it was. It, it's a it's a wonderful place, and I'm glad I was there. So when I decided to leave there, um, well, let me back up a little bit before because I wanted to I wanted to talk a little bit more about the ROs. They had uh, their Ramuda on that ranch was the best ranch horses I ever rode in my life. I mean. There wasn't hardly anything in there that you couldn't just catch and, and, and go do something on outside of the young horse. But 
they were great horses, good rough country horses, because the R. Rose is a rough place. Good rough country horses, good. They had a lot of cow in them horses, and they were built right. They had good feet on them, good legs. They had all them horses had withers. Um, and I mean, you could put a saddle on them, and you, and you knew you were you were locked into one of them horses because they had such good withers and backs on them. They're not that way anymore, but that's neither here nor there. Um, Do you know what the breeding, what type of breeding they used back then? I don't know the original breeding. Um, it was one of those things that was kind of hush-hush for some reason or another. Uh, <laughs> but they started introducing um, Pepe Sand horses into that bunch of mares. And it was a good cross, but they were a lot more hot-blooded and you couldn't ride them quite the same way they were like i say they were just more hot-blooded so you had to approach them with a little bit different attitude than some of the the older ranch horses that were might have been a little bit less hot-blooded but they still had a lot of cow in them but they had a different kind of a disposition to them and these particular sand peppy horses were were a little they were just a little bit more um Temperamental. You could you could you could get one wound up pretty easily if you went to whaling on him. But but they were good horses. And that that horse that drugged me, uh, Playboy. He was a he was a San Pepe horse. And okay. um, but they they kept going in that direction where those horses got um, their feet weren't as good. Their legs were smaller, thinner, kind of boned horses because they were trying to get in. The, the manager was trying to get into the cutting horse thing. He, he liked cutting horses, so he was trying to gear them that way, which was a mistake. I mean, you could have had two mares that raised a couple of cutting horses and gone that way, but that's the way he was trending that thing. And it, and it cost them in the long run because they they weren't as big, stout, tough horses like the the horses that I had when I when I was first there. And they were just they had just started that program. Uh, a few years before that, so there weren't a lot of them there, but there was enough of them there. I had two of them, and they were great horses, but they just weren't, they just didn't hold up like some of the older horses did. Um, but um, like I said earlier, then we trailed cows everywhere. We trailed our horses with us everywhere. Um, there was a minimal amount of roads on the place in those days. You had one road that cut through the ranch that went all the way to Francis Creek, where I lived. And then you had a road that went all the way out to Mahone. And Mahone was the remote ranch. It was the most remote ranch on the place. And we were remote at Francis Creek. I mean, there was just nothing there but us and our neighbors on another ranch or two over there. But uh, they were miles away. So Mahone was set back up inside of on the edge of Mahone Canyon, and it was a rough place, a rough, wild place. I mean, wild. Uh, the cattle were a little bronchier over there. Um, it wasn't anything to see lions over there. My wife has seen six lions since we lived there for five years. She saw six lions just driving up and down the road. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but the thing is that... that um, it was a well-organized ranch. Uh, Cisco was very good at running the wagon. And so it, we did the same kinds of things all the time. So the horses knew where they were going. Most of the cows knew where they were going, even if they didn't want to go there. But they went anyway. And uh, But you had to handle them because that country was so rough and wild out there that, that they got – the country just made them a little rougher and a little wilder. Um, but – you could handle them. You could hold them up someplace and go to work on them. And we did that a lot. I mean, we sorted cows out there in the middle of nowhere a bunch. And you could see how well-mannered those cows were once you got around them and, and they kind of simmered down a little bit because they the cows weren't trying to run through you all the time. And you could sort them cows off, you know, the calves off because we weaned outside there quite a bit. And so when we weaned cattle, like it, I'll give you, for instance, at Rock Dam, we would have four or 500 head of cows, 
and we'd stick them down on up the edge of the dirt tank. And we had this big old rocky ridge just above the dirt tank. And so Cisco would go in there and he'd work five wiener pairs out and he would park them out there with a guy holding them. And then he would start cutting the wiener calves to them. And so by the time we were done, we'd have this big pile of wiener calves and one guy holding them. And so when, when we got done with that, then we would we would take those calves and those cows that were in, in that, they were the padding for those calves. We would take them over and move them over to a branding trap. And the branding trap was made out of hog panels and, and Powder River gate on it, so it was pretty stout. And we would leave them there overnight. And then we would, it was a couple of guys with those cows, and so we would turn them around and head them off down to out out of Rock Dam down a big canyon. Well, oddly enough, it was almost like those cows were kind of glad to be rid of those calves because very <laughs> few, yeah, very few of them came back and and bawled after their calves. You might have you know eight or ten of them standing around out there, but that was no big deal. We'd gather them up, and instead of just running them off, we'd gather them up and we'd take them down there and put them around and kick them off down in that canyon again. And then we would bring all the stuff from Mahone that we had previously sorted off of cows. We would bring that from Mahone all the way down to Rock Dam, which was six miles, something like that. We'd bring them down there, park them out in front of the branding trap, open the gate, bring all that stuff out. Well, those calves, if they decided to run, they ran right back to the dirt tank because that's where the last place they saw their mother. And so we'd stop them right there and we'd get everything quieted down and then we'd take them out through that big rocky ridge. So if you take them to those, those rocks, they're not as apt to run off because it's hard on their feet. So you had them controlled there until you got them off the ridge, down the other side of the ridge, headed south, and then you would hit a big road and we'd trail them down that road, cross Dividing Canyon, which was a monstrous canyon. We'd cross that canyon out the other side, and then we were in my country. So we would take all that stuff and take it down there and put it in a in a big old trap, had water at two ends. And, and um, so then that would be kind of towards the end of the fall wagon. So we ended the fall wagon at Francis Creek. And we would start the fall wagon at headquarters, and we would cover everything. We'd do headquarters, and we'd go to Bear Creek. And from Bear Creek, we'd go to Triangle Inn. These are camps on, on the ranch. And then from Triangle Inn, we would go to Mahone. And um, so when we had all that cut, Triangle Inn, we would work it back towards a place called West Split. And it's... I can see it in my mind. You won't be able to picture all this, but West Split was kind of a centrally located uh, division between uh, the CO, the the, uh, the Baca Float Number Five, the original land grant, and the West Side. And so we would bring everything back to West Split, and we would hold it there in a in a big old trap. And when we got ready to leave, the day be, the, the day before we would take a couple of days off, we would gather all that stuff up and we would trail it back towards headquarters and put it in a place called Cottonwood. Well, while we were taking cattle to Cottonwood, um, the the other guys would um, take those horses and put them into a, at West Split, they would put them into a horse trap there called the Jones Trap. And on our days off, they would leave all that stuff there and so we would split up from there, go our separate ways, wherever anybody was going. Everybody went to headquarters except for me and Cisco. And um, so after two days, well, two guys were designated to go out there that morning. They had horses caught up there in, in a pen at West Splinton. So they would go gather all the horses out of the Jones Trap. And so the Jones Trap was uh, two and a half miles wide and four miles long. That's a big holding pasture. 
for the well, Yeah, it is. And so the ROs had horse pastures like that all over. Every every camp had a big horse pasture like that to accommodate the 175 head of horses that we trailed with us all the time during the wagon. Um, so once they once we got back together, we'd all get back together at West Split, and so those guys would bring those horses in. And um, so they would count them into the dry trap. They would count all the horses into the dry trap, make sure they had everything. And so then they'd bring them through the dry trap at the end of Jones pasture, bring them up through there, and then we'd park them in, inside a set of pens, big pen, I mean like a water lot, and we'd get them in the ropes, and we would catch those horses up, the, our, our horses for that for that day and we would take the horses with us and um we would trail them all the way in well some of the guys would bring horses like me and spider daily and somebody else would would bring horses and everybody else would get all their stuff together and they would take it over to francis creek and so they'd have to go back out on the road and like i say we didn't have many roads so you would go back out on the road towards headquarters and then go through Bear Creek country and go all the way back around down to Francis Creek. Well, in the meantime, um, the rest of us are trailing horses to Francis Creek from West Split. And um, it, it was a fun time. I didn't I always liked trailing the horses because it was it was kind of a relaxing thing because those horses were well mannered. And once you got them lined out, they just went, you know, they just poke along there and graze and do whatever they were doing. And so. It was our tradition when we left Mahone that we would, um, once we started out with the horses, then we would all, Spider Daily always had cigars, so we would all light a cigar up, and that was our horse trailing cigar fest. <laughs> <laughs> so then we would uh, we would trail all the horses in and we'd get camp organized and those guys that were living in teepees they'd pitch everything and get the wagon set up and then that next morning um the first thing we do is we would go back to um where we had left off at dividing canyon now remember we took all those those cuts the stuff that we weaned we trailed it down to a, we trailed it across Dividing Canyon into a, into a big pasture down there. So then we would go back, pick all that stuff up, bring it out, and uh, we, would, we would count it. We counted it in and we counted it out. And then we would trail all that stuff back to a, a, a big old pasture called the Steer Pasture uh, behind my house. And uh, so then that would be, that would be the end of that day one. And so then the next day, that afternoon, we'd catch horses for the next day. So we'd catch two horses, uh, a morning horse and an afternoon horse. And um, then we'd start the whole process all over again. We'd go all the way back out to Black Tanks, which is the very end of my country. And we'd gather, we'd start gathering that back towards Francis Creek. And... Um, so we just went on like that from day in and day out, and we went to Brushy Basin, which was the really rough country. We'd spend three days in there, and then we would do what they call Southeast Mesa, big, big monstrous drive. And uh, But that would be the end of the fall wagon when we got done with that. Then they would leave those cattle there for me to take care of, and... Um, and the wagon, they would trail the horses out, and the wagon would leave, and I didn't have to see them again till the next spring. Huh. So that was my that was my my life at the ROs, and so from there, I got a job through Ed Ashurst running a ranch in southern Arizona called the Seventy Six Ranch, and uh, the guy that owned it had had bought this ranch he bought it for i think something like four hundred thousand or something like that so anyway so he hired me over the phone now over the phone so that was an odd thing but he was in in need of somebody to take over that ranch and run it for him and so i thought well i'll do that 
So we loaded up our stuff, and uh, Scott Derringer, uh, the saddle maker, he helped us move down there. And um, so I went to, once we got moved in, and the guy that was there, um, he was still there when I got there. And so Daryl, the owner of that place, fired him. And the next day. After you got there? After I'd got there. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. And so then, but he has, but then he asked um, Dennis, the guy who I replaced, he said, well, would you mind taking him around and showing him the ranch? And, well, Dennis did it. I don't know why. I wouldn't have done it <laughs> if I'd been handled that way. I'd have said, no, you wanted him to see the ranch. He can go find it out for himself. But anyway, he did that, and I appreciated that. But he didn't help me. You know, he... He, I could tell that he and his wife were, they were not happy about that little turn of events. But anyway, so um, once we got all that out of the way, I asked Daryl, I said, well, what do you want to do with this place? What do you want to do? Well, he couldn't give me an answer because he wasn't really sure. So I said, well, okay. So I looked the ranch over. I saw the amount of cows that they had there at the time. I think there was... 264 head of cows, which is nothing for a place that's um, 71 sections of, of land out there. So I told him, well, we need to buy cows. And so he says, well, okay, that, that sounds good. He says, so his plan was to buy bred heifers. And I said, that's going to be way expensive to buy bred heifers, especially the amount of cattle that, that we need. But he says, oh, don't, don't worry about that. He said, just just find bread heifers. And so I went to New, I looked around and I, I found a guy by the name of Dave Ogilvy. Um, he wasn't my first guy that I found, but there was um, two brothers in out of Camaro, New Mexico that uh, had uh, Angus cattle, sort of kind of a, not straight Angus, but pretty close to straight Angus. and. Uh, so I bought 205 head of those bred heifers, and they were excellent cows. I mean, for young cattle, they were they were pretty nice. They didn't handle very good. Uh, they were too gentle. They were too gentle. But um, anyway, so I got those, and then I found Dave, um, Dave Ogilvy in in out of Silver City, New Mexico, and I bought another. 200 and I think 210 head of, of bred heifers from him. And then I found another guy in New Mexico by the name of Cheryl, uh, Carol Shelley. Carol Shelley was the guy's name. And so I bought 175 head of bred heifers from him. So needless to say, I've spent close to a million dollars on, on cattle, but I mean, he didn't even he didn't even blink an eye. Wow. He just oh okay good yeah that's great. So anyway, um, so we got those cattle on onto the ranch, and before all that, um, we had gotten some fences fixed and some waters fixed and some wells drilled, and you know it wasn't like overnight I got them cattle there, but eventually, um. We started buying cattle and, and bringing them onto the place, and so, yeah. um, and that's when I met Tabor Dahl, because I was looking for some day help, and and a guy by the name of Jack Tunks, he said, well, there's a couple of buckaroos down there in the in Klondike Canyon that that day that day work around, and so Tabor Dahl was one of them, and Dave Hall was the other guy. I don't know if you have ever run into Dave Hall before. I haven't, no. Okay, well, he's kind of a buckaroo artist guy, a good artist. I I, I love his stuff. But um, anyway, so Dave was the first guy to come up. And so then he says, well, there's another guy down here, uh, Tabor Dahl. Um, he'll day work. And I said, well, okay, you know, bring him with you the next time you come up. And so that's how I met Tabor Dahl. And we've been friends ever since. So um, in the course of seven years of running the 76 ranch well 
to make this uh, uh, this longer story shorter, I mean, as far as that place is concerned, um, I got all the horses on the place. I got all of the cattle that that um, that we needed for the place. So I think we wound up with twelve hundred head of 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 cows eventually. So I had uh, all of them were, were first calf heifers when I got all this stuff. So I got one bunch one season and got them calved out and got them branded up and got them into the country that I wanted them to be in. And then we purchased some more and kind of went on like that. And so then Daryl, he says, well, she says, we need more, we need more country. And so the Eureka Springs Ranch, which was right next door to us, they were, they went on the market and so after looking the whole thing over, I said, well, if you're going to do that, I said, get everything that's connected directly to the 76 ranch and don't get anything other than that. And so we got all that land that was right underneath the 76 ranch. It tied in perfectly. It was beautiful. Probably the best grass on the whole, all of the Eureka Springs ranch. Um and so along with that, we got their forest allotments, which were uh, two of them. And they were in rugged, rugged country, just terrible rough country. But anyway, um, so getting that hooked to the 76 ranch, um, Daryl was, he was more happy then because we had a lot more land. And so what I did with some of that land was I didn't put cows on it uh, every year. I would use it, I would use one of those pastures as a grass bank, and so I always had some place to go with cattle um, if if we got into a into a bad drought, which we did eventually. But um, that's cool that you were able to have enough land to do that. Absolutely. And so I when I saw the the amount of land we had, I thought of, I thought this is what we need to do. And I'm glad I did that because it saved a it saved a lot of cattle when we got into a bad drought. It was terrible drought. Cactus was dying. You know, it takes a little droughtiness to kill cactus and mesquite trees, but it was killing them. So, but anyway, um, so after I was there for five years, no, four years. And Daryl comes to me one day and he says, well, he says, uh, we've decided we're going to sell the ranch. And I'm like, why? I says, we're we're not even, you know, we're just getting started in this thing. He says, well, he, anyway, he had a big deal going on. His brother had caused a, a big land scandal up there north of Tucson. And so he was taking it over and. Anyway, I don't know all the details of it, but so he decided he's going to sell the ranch. And so he puts it on the market. And so part of my job after that was to go around there with certain people and show them the ranch. And I told them, I said, look, I'm not going to go out there and help these tire kickers look at this ranch. I said, you got real estate people. If they need help with something, they can come and find me or let me know the day before so that I can coordinate with them. But I said, I'm not going to sit around here waiting for these idiots to show up. I said, I got too much to do. So he says, no, that's fine. Do whatever you got to do. So that's how that worked out. So anyway, um, in the process of all that, um, I, I he says, well, it's going to take several years to sell this thing. So it took three years to sell it. And... Um, so in that three years, it was like, well, I don't know how much further I want to go forward with this. So I figured I'll just keep it the way it is, not really try to plan on anything ahead because I couldn't ever plan on too far ahead with something like that because yeah. somebody might show up and decide they're going to buy it and that would put an end to it. Yeah. Anyway, so had quite a few guys that were interested in it. And so I just kept running it until they finally finally got it sold, and they sold it to some Mormons out of Mexico. Jay Wetton and his family, they were um, 
an old family out of Mexico. So um, as I understand it, when they were when they were polygamists all over the place in Utah or wherever they were at, well, they they outlawed the the practice of polygamy. So the the Wettons they all moved to Mexico, and so they established themselves in Mexico. I mean, you know, this was probably 1900 something like that. I don't know exactly the date, but so they grew. Those guys grew up down there. So English was their second language, and they all spoke good English, but they were primarily, they spoke Spanish. So here's a bunch of gringos that speak Spanish, and, and, and English is a second language to them. But nice people. I, I really liked Jay. He was, a, he was a, a decent fellow. His wife was a lovely woman. Uh, so they got it into escrow. And I'm telling you this so that you... You can kind of get a, a an, an idea of this thing because I had honestly I had planned to retire on the seventy six ranch. I figured this is this is could be the last place I ever work. Well, that's yeah. turn out that way. It sounds so, like a really neat place. It was. It's a beautiful place. I loved it there. I mean, we just loved it there. Um, so he gets it into escrow. Well, come the eleventh hour of the escrow this is like within a day or two of escrow closing well jay wetton's banker uh they just they find him shot in the back of the head and that that shuts the whole thing down because the the bank is shut down he can't do any more business um he doesn't know how to get his money out of the bank because the 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 banker was killed and so they figured that it was a cartel that did it because Jay Wetton was taking a lot. He was taking a lot of stuff out of Mexico, taking it to the United States. And, and I guess they got wind of it because they, they tried to kidnap his son and they got his son out of Mexico, got him up to the United States and got him tucked away. And um, so they I can't even believe that. That's crazy. I know it. And so here we are. I'm just going along, you know, doing my my deal every day. And Jay Wetton and his wife come up there to the house and uh, they said, well, this is what happened. And so so Daryl tells him, well, okay." he says, I'm going to give you two weeks to get this thing organized. He says, otherwise, if you can't get it done in two weeks, he says that I'm going to shut this thing down. You're out of it and we'll start over. Which Daryl didn't have to do. He could have said no. You know, yeah. but he gave him two weeks, and um, so <clears throat> Jay got it together somehow. He got got it organized and got got the escrow to close. He had his collateral money or whatever, but it it cost him a whole lot more money for Daryl to do that for him. I think it cost him another one point two million dollars because Daryl gave him that two week extension. So, however that worked, I don't know. But anyway, so the escrow closed, and um, so my wife and I, we eventually loaded up and left, and Daryl took care of us financially. You know, he said, I'll give you X amount of dollars if you'll stay here till this thing is sold, and so I did. And uh, Daryl, good guy. I I really appreciate him. I stay in touch with him to this day. Um, Good man. Um, so we left the 76 ranch and we just went on out, put our stuff in storage and away we went. And, um, eventually I went back to the diamond a in, in Northern Arizona, went back there and worked for that outfit again. I worked for them one, two, three, four, five times in my life. Anyway, so we went there. I went to work and we were, all we were going to do was me and a guy by the name of Ryan Manaphy were going to take care of the, the steers that they were bringing onto the place. And so that was, our function was to take care of the steers. They had another guy over at Black Tanks. He was going to take care of the Black Tanks steers over there, a guy by the name of Scott Bale. Um, so I did that, me and Ryan. Yeah, I hate 
we hired our own crew of guys for the for gathering the steers and putting them out and this that and the other thing and but basically it was me Ryan and and Scott took care of the took care of the steers and we had uh probably 6500 head between the three of us and so I'd take care of a couple thousand and Ryan would and Scott would and so we just spent our days riding steers and doctoring foot rot and pink eye and that's about all we did uh, until it come time to gather then we'd get a two or three guys together for a crew and um go to gather and so I stayed there and did that and then um Jimmy Smith was running the the wagon end of it the cow the, the cow calf operation and so he was always in need of help during the wagon. And so he would come to us and say, hey, could you guys come and help me for a day or two, gather cattle and this, that, and the other thing. And it went on spring and fall. That's what we did. No big deal. Um, so it went on like that for another year. And... Um, then Harvey Dietrich. Now he's part of this deal. He's he's run cattle on on the Diamond A's since the seventies. And um, Harvey Dietrich is a is a cow hustler. I mean, he is a cow hustler. He's believe it or not, Harvey Dietrich. He never cowboyed a day in his life. And he's been inducted. He, he several years ago he was inducted into the Cowboy Hall of Fame. As as a cow buyer, as as a guy who oh. kept the industry going, who kept cowboys working, and he did. He he wow. was good at that. So he and Jimmy Smith got crossways with something going on during a wagon, and um, I don't I don't remember. I think Jimmy Smith finally said, "Well, I quit." Then he says, "I'll finish this wagon." He said, "But I quit. I'm not working for you anymore." So I didn't find out the details of this till later on. So we're still doing our steer program. And so we finally get our steers shipped and Jim gets his cattle, you know, doing whatever it is he's doing. So Harvey comes to me after we kind of got this thing simmered down a little bit. And he says, well, I'm looking for a wagon boss. And my first reaction is, well, good luck. I hope you find one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. Um, I saw the I saw the kind of hassles that Jimmy Smith went through to to run that wagon with Harvey and Gary Wilson, the manager, and all the little wacky things that went on with that wagon. But anyway, so Harvey keeps bugging me about it, and so I finally took the wagon boss job. And I can't remember the dates. I, I'm terrible with dates anymore. Um, I want to say that was 2013. I think it was 2013 when, when he started bugging me about that. And so I finally took the wagon. And um, I, I'm trying to remember this now because there's been a lot of water under the bridge since those days. Um, let me see how this goes. No, no, I take it back. I take it back. That's not how it went down. They were in the middle of the spring works. Jimmy Smith had hired him a crew and had some some good guys on there. I mean, I I enjoyed them. They were they were good good cowboys, good good young guys. And so something happened. One of the guys did something or said something to the cook, and the cook went and complain to Harvey about it. I don't know how Harvey was there at that time, but he went and complained directly to Harvey. Harvey got mad about the whole thing, came up there, fired Jim, and fired this kid that had caused the trouble. And so there they are with this wagon that had to be finished. And so he says, well, you need to go down there and 
and take over the wagon. I said, well, now, wait a minute. I said, he's already, Jimmy Smith has already groomed another guy to take over the wagon. I says, I, I know this for a fact because he told me this. He says, well, he says, well, that guy, he, he's not going to be the wagon boss on this thing. And so I said, well, I'll go down and help them. But I, I says, I'm not going to step into this thing the way you want me to and, and start running running orders at people because they, they wouldn't tolerate it. it. Wagons are funny that way. They get used to a particular guy and somebody else comes in there and starts telling them what to do. Well, they, they take it as a personal insult. So I said, I'll just go down there and help them. And we'll let this guy that, that thinks he's going to be the wagon boss, we'll let him go along here for a little while until we get this thing squared away. I said, because you only got one more pasture to gather, although it's a big one. I said, you only got one more to do, and then we're, you're done with it. And then we can get this thing organized. So I go down there, and we help these guys. And uh, so we get the wagon done, and we go home. And the guy that's out there at 16, they just set him on, you know, let him do his thing. Well, this whole time, he thinks he's going to be the wagon boss on on the next wagon. And nobody says anything to him about this thing. So we come around to uh, the fall works, and so we're getting we're getting steers in, and Harvey says, well, how do you want to do this? I says, what do you mean, how do I want to do it? Says well, well, we got to we start got to start thinking about the fall works. I said, well, okay. I said, so what are you going to do with what are you going to do with Ty? What are you going to do with this guy at sixteen? Well, what do you think we ought to do? I said, well, here's what I think. Just go down there and send him back to his camp and tell him to take care of the heifers that he's got, and I'll just slip in there and take over the wagon. And so that's what they did. Well, of course, Ty got wind of that, and and so he he blew up and quit. And but we expected that. So anyway, so I went along and ran the wagon there for a couple of years, and until the manager and I just got crossways with too many things, and so um, I I left them. And let me say something about that Diamond A wagon. Um, from the time that Ed took over that and ran it, he ran it very well. It was a well-organized machine. And so everybody after that, um, the good ones and the not-so-good ones, they they tried to get it back to that particular thing, but nobody ever could. And mm. the horses weren't the same. The cowboys weren't the same. Uh, Harvey Dietrich was uh, more involved in the day-to-day thing, in you know where the cattle went, where they didn't go, and that made it very difficult for a wagon boss to run it and to do things the way that a wagon boss normally does things. And so that was the contention with most of them that they got crossways with Harvey about um, where cows should go, the cull cows, and and how to handle them. And it was always a contention. Those cull cows at the end of the fall works was always a contention with every wagon boss that was there. Um, and there was a lot of them. And I knew almost every single one of them. Worked with most all of them So over the years. So when I had that and I had a guy by the name of Jake Rogers, that's Clay Rogers' younger brother. Okay. Um, in those days, when Jake was just a, a little kid at Babbitt's, we just we called him Pugsley. So uh, anyway, so he comes on, and he's going to be my jigger boss. Well, usually the wagon boss picks the jigger boss, and but Harvey had him picked out. He says, "Well, I want Jake to be the jigger boss." I said, "Well, what if I don't like Jake?" Well, just try to get along with him for right now. <laughs> and I said, "Okay." So I had this idea in my mind. I said, well, I don't want to, you know, I'm I'm already pushing 60 years old. I said, well, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life, running this wagon. But I should have never said that. I should have just kept my mouth shut. And at the time, I thought, I, I got a hold of Jake, and I said, this is, this is my plan. I said, um, 
I'm going to run this wagon for two wagons and, and you're going to help me run this wagon. And I said, and when I'm done after two wagons and I feel comfortable that you can run this wagon by yourself, I says, I'll hand you the, the, the reins to the wagon and you can run the wagon and I'll go back and do steers and you can go on your merry way. Well, that, that sounded good to everybody. Everybody, oh boy, that's a great idea. Well, it didn't work out that way. So Jake leaves and I said, well, I says, this time, I said, I'm picking my own jigger boss. I said, you stay out of it. And Harvey says, okay, fine. So <laughs> the next wagon, I pick a kid by the name of Zach Peacock and good young guy. Um, he had worked for me at the 76 ranch. So I, I kind of brought him along. So I knew kind of how he thought and he was very willing. So we got a crew of guys together and we went and started doing the doing the wagon and i just went every day every day every day but i i was my idea was to take it back to the way that ed ran it and i figured if anybody can do this because i was on those more wagons with ed than anybody else that was mm-hmm. associated with the diamond a's in the past 10 years so i figured if anybody knows how to do this it's going to be me because I remembered how Ed did it. So that's how I was doing it. And it really uh, upset the, the manager. He didn't like it, and I didn't care. I just kept right on doing it. Well, anyway, so I got crossways with, with the manager, and uh, I, but I didn't care. I, I wasn't worried about him. I figured he could do whatever he wants to. I'm the one that has to get up every day, catch these horses, and go gather these cattle, and brand them, and ship them, and do all that. So... I just went ahead with my little rat killing project and, and that's what I did. <laughs> and um, so eventually it cost me, but uh, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't really worry about it. I really didn't. And um, so at the end of all that, all the branding. So I got a crew of guys, that last wagon that were from Oklahoma and Texas and none of them, had ever worked cattle outside without any fences around them. Not one of them. So I took them out there and I told them what I'm going to do. And so that's what we did. And I gathered cattle up and branded calves and I showed them how I wanted it done. And I made them do it. I mean, they didn't understand some of it, but I, I, made them sit out there till they got it figured out. I branded outside. Um, I worked the cattle outside, mainly because it was easier on the cattle. That was the main thing. It was a lot easier than sticking them in those pens and jamming them around through those pens. They quieted down a whole lot better if you worked them outside. So that's what I did. I'd sort all the bulls off, get them going one way. I'd sort all the, all the straight-bellied dries off, and I'd send them another way. And all the heavy dries... Um, I would send them in another direction and then I would take all the cattle that had calves on them that were big enough to be branded and we'd go brand those cattle. Well, the manager comes along and he said, well, what's these cattle over here? I said, well, what do they look like? Well, they look like a bunch of dry cows. I says, yeah, there's two different kinds of dry cows out here. There's the straight-bellied dry cows and they got bulls with them. There's the, there's the heavy dries that can't make these trips because they're getting so heavy, they got bulls with them. I said, just leave them there. And that's, I said, when, when they get done calving, then we'll, once the wagon's over, they'll all be done calving. We can go back in there eventually, gather those cows up and brand those calves, and we can stick them back out there with the main herd. So he scratched his head, and he went off and mumbled. And so anyway, he didn't like that, <laughs> because that's that's not what he and Jimmy Smith had done. Mm-hmm. See, they just they just throw these big wads of cattle together and brand up a bunch of stuff and turn it loose. Well, they never, and I'm not saying anything against Jimmy because he's a good guy. I mean, he really is. But he didn't he couldn't see that, and he didn't know that that's how it used to be done. And and I know that Gary Wilson knew that. He knew exactly how it was done in those days. But he you know he wouldn't ever say nothing like that. So. That's what I was doing, and um, and I didn't care what Gary thought. I just kept right on doing it, and Harvey didn't know anything about it. 
But what Gary didn't know was that once a week I was calling Harvey on the phone and, and telling him where we were on the wagon, what was going on, how I was dealing with this, that, and the other thing. And so Harvey already knew that this is what I was doing, and he never said a word. See, that was the thing about those 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 kind of guys like Harvey Dietrich. If, if it was to his advantage, he would let it go until it, did, it wasn't to his advantage anymore. And so he liked the idea of it. Uh, and I told him, I said, if we keep doing this, I says, you're not going to have to go through and pick and choose on your on your old dry cows that you send out of here. I says, they're going to be in one place. And so when the market goes up on them on them old Shelly dry cows, I said, if you can go out there and and gather them up and go through them and say, well, let's sell this one and keep this and sell that and keep this. And that was the one thing that clicked in his mind. He said, that, that's a good idea. So anyway, and I'm not tooting my own horn with this thing. It was just, it was the obvious thing to do. That's what a cowman would have done with a, with a herd of cows. You'd sort these things out so that you had this over there and that over in another place and this old junk out here by itself so that, it wasn't mingled in with the herd, and you had to go out there and screw around with that herd in order to get them old Shelly cows out of there when, whenever Harvey Dietrich decided he wanted to cull a bunch of cows. So that was my <laughs> thought process on this thing. So so getting back to Jake Rogers, I told him what we were doing. This was, this was another fall wagon. And I said, um, we don't – I said, every time they've had this, this cull cow thing, I says – People have gotten upset and they and they quit over it and and they get it you know they're almost at blows with each other because there's no communication between these between Harvey and Gary and whoever was running the wagon. So I said, let's do this. He, Harvey says, I want 583. He calculated this out on his little you know think pad and he said, I want 583 co cows. Now how he came to that conclusion, I don't know, but. That's what he said. And so I said, okay. I says, this is what we're going to do. We're going to, when I go in, I'm going to cull it the way I see it. When you ride in, you cull it exactly the way you see it. And, and, I, and he says, okay, yeah. So he did that, and I did that. So we got a wad of cattle, and we loaded them on the truck and sent them down there. So it was like a week later. And here comes a... Here comes a load of cows, and not on a semi-load, but like a big trailer that they had down there. And here comes here comes some of these cows. Well, they were big, fat, dry cows that that Jake had cut out, and rightly so. He was right in doing that. But they saw them as, well, if they're fat, then they should stay here, irregardless of whether or not they're producing a calf. So... I said, well, see that, Jake? I said, that tells us what they're looking for and what they're not looking for. I said, so that, that's, our, that's our guideline in, in as far as culling these cows. And you could see the light go on in his head. It was like, oh, okay. And so that's how we did it from that point on. And we never had another thing come back. All that being said, um, the manager thought I was, he actually thought I was after his job, that I wanted to get rid of him. And so one day, Harvey says, well, we'd had a meeting, and, and he says, he comes to me privately, and he says, well, what do you think of Gary Wilson? I said, do you think I ought to fire him? And I said, Harvey, he's your man. I says, if you don't know what he is by now, I says, what am I going to tell you? See, he was trying to set me up. <laughs> That's Harvey. And I said, if, if you, yeah, if you don't know the guy by now, I says, I, there's nothing I can tell you about him that you don't already know. And so he kind of looked at me, and, and that was the end of the conversation. And so he would bring that conversation up once in a while, and I never gave him, I never gave him any bait. I just said, look, you know, you, if you don't like him, get rid of him. But I says, it's not up to me. It's up to you. He's your man. So. But Gary didn't like me because he felt that I was after his job or something along those lines. But he said, he said, well, well, uh, you've got an agenda. I can tell. And I said, you're right, Gary. I do have an agenda. I says, I want to, I want to make this cow outfit run as, as, as efficiently as it possibly can. And he just kind of looked at me and 
that was the, that was the last time we had a conversation about that kind of thing. And I didn't say, you know, you did this or you did that. I just said, that's that's my that's my agenda. And I said, you know, you can you can help or not. So I left it at that. Well, that didn't set well with him. I mean, he didn't he didn't it didn't factor into his mind the way that the way that it should have. So he convinced Harvey that. And I don't know how he did this. He convinced Harvey that that they needed to find a younger wagon boss because I was because those words that I told you that I don't want to do this forever. Well, he kept dinging on Harvey with that, and so he convinced Harvey that they needed to go find somebody else to run the wagon. And so at the end of the sp- uh, uh, at the end of a spring wagon, Gary comes to me and says, "Well, you can go back to camp. Uh, we got another guy that's going to do this." And so I left. I just went home, told my wife, and we packed up and uh, and left. So eventually I wound up back at Babbitt's uh, through a few twists and turns. And, um, and I was glad to be there. I actually started out as, as Vic's waterman the last time I was there. So Vic finally comes to me one day and says, uh, how would you feel about having a camp? I said, well, I'd love that. He goes, okay. He says, well, SP, the guy that was at SP camp had been there for years and years and years. And so he was turning 65. And so they decided that um, they were going to retire him at 65 years old. They left. And so they decided they were going to completely rebuild the the sp the the uh the the tubs house and they were going to put a a modular home in there for us to live in and so that went on and on and on and on and on and so i started riding and so i had my horses and i would go over there every day from headquarters i would go over there get a horse back and go do whatever i needed to do and charles kent would come over and and Tad was there sometimes, or Jack Rogers would be there. And so that went on until we finally moved into the camp. And um, so it was a brand new home. I mean, brand spanking new. Nobody lived in it but us. And that was a wonderful thing. And um, I stayed there till I broke my wrist. And um, we finally left. And so um, we left. And... I was drinking pretty heavy then. I mean, I was I was drinking whiskey every day, only because of the wrist and and some other things. But um, so, in the process of all of that, we finally left, and I and I told my wife, I says, I can't find a job anywhere. I says, I, there's nothing out there that's worth me going and doing, and so I'm going to have to go and day work. And so I had to load, pack up everything I owned and put it in storage. And I had to leave my wife in Flagstaff while I went to um, Salina, Utah, and went to work for Alan Gurney. Okay. And they were looking for somebody to ride for them. And so I said, well, I can ride. And uh, so... I went to work for Alan Gurney, and they stuck me out in a camp out there west of Milford, uh, out there in the desert, and I was by myself. I don't know. I had 800 head of cows to take care of, but anyway, so uh, <laughs> and um, so I had no idea what was going on with my wife. I, I had a little flip phone, and I had lousy service up there. Couldn't hardly get a hold of anybody for anything. Um so I was driving around on my pickup one day. They still had they hadn't gotten me a company truck. They were in the process of getting me a company truck and a trailer and and so I'm driving around in my in my personal truck and I'd gone to Baker or yeah, to, to Baker down there, some little bitty town. They didn't even have books in the town, it was so small. Um on the way back and this is this is part of my story, and this is 
why I'm here in this feed yard today. Um, so driving back from Baker, I get up. I was a half a mile from my camp going up this old sandy old road. And my pickup stops. It just quit. Just quit. And I've got no booster. I can't call anybody. I don't know anybody. There's nothing around there. There's no people around there. And so I walk to camp and I messed around in camp for a while. And then I went back down there and I tried to start my truck. Wouldn't start, wouldn't start, wouldn't start. And this isn't this isn't my typical mode of doing things, but I, I asked God to help me. That was the first time in my life I really asked God to help me. And when I got done with that prayer, there was two guys in a pickup sitting next to me on that dirt road. And you could see for miles around that thing, and there was nobody. But there was two guys sitting right there in a pickup next to me. And I got out of the pickup, and I said, uh, I work for Alan Gurney. My pickups broke down. He goes, oh, I know Alan real well. He says, I'll get a hold of him, tell him what your problem is, and, and, you know, we'll go from there. So they gave me a ride up to my camp. And um, Alan, I, I, I didn't have a booster. You had to have a booster for your phone so that you could call out from there. So I didn't have any way of knowing when or how long or anything like that. So within about three or four days, a guy comes up that Alan sent out there, and he says, and he's got a trailer with him. And he says, well, come on. He says, we'll load this up. We'll take it into town, and you can get a pickup and trailer. And so um, so we did that, and I got into town, and Alan says, don't worry about that. He says, I'll send him to my, I'll send your pickup to my mechanic, and he'll take care of this thing. Whatever it is, he'll, we'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. So Alan Gurney was very good to me. Uh, he took good care of me. and. Uh, and I, I've always liked the guy from that from that moment on. I've always liked him. And so um, I continued to to talk to the Lord about things, and um, I do to this day. So the transition in my life from being a, a hardcore cowpuncher to today, and I still am, but I work at a feed yard now, and. Um, but I think that God has blessed me by bringing me here. It's not the thing that I like to do, but it's the thing where I have been able to be more financially secure than any time in my life as a cowboy. And I'm on social security and all these kinds of things. But, but my experience over the years brought me here or my experience has, has put me in a position here where, um, I know things that these people have no idea about, no idea about. They've never seen the kind of cattle that I've <laughs> I learned how to be a cowboy on, not one of them. So I have an advantage over them that way, And but I don't push that. I just do my thing here. But I think that, that God has brought me here for a particular reason, and I don't know exactly all the time what that is, but... Um, over the years, I've lived a, a, a typical cowpuncher's life, and uh, I still do to this day in a lot of ways, but uh, I'm a Christian now, and it has changed my life. And so anyway, so I'm here, and uh, that's kind of the end of my story. So, No, that's cool. That's a neat story. You've been a lot of different really cool places. I just have one question for you. I always like it. It seems everybody has a different answer for this question, but in your mind, how do you define the word cowboy? Oh, wow. Um, a guy who's willing to get on any horse, they hand him and go out and do his job the best he knows how to do it. And uh, if it needs to be roped, then you rope it. And if it needs to be put through a gate, you put it through the gate. But you, you don't. You don't back off because your horses aren't that good. That That's how I see it. And I wish more of these young modern guys would, would uh, pay attention to that kind of stuff because it, it'd, make them, it'd make them better hands. 
That concludes my interview with Mike McLaughlin. If you like what you're listening to, please leave us a rating and a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. And just like always, to put a face behind the name with everybody we talk to, head over to our Instagram page. It's at cowboystories underscore podcast. And if you've been listening to this and you have thought of somebody who would be great to interview for the show, please send me a nomination email to cowboystoriespodcast at gmail.com. See you next time. concludes my interview with Mike McLaughlin. If you like what you're listening to, please leave us a rating and a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. And just like always, to put a face behind the name with everybody we talk to, head over to our Instagram page. It's at cowboystories underscore podcast. And if you've been listening to this and you have thought of somebody who would be great to interview for the show, please send me a nomination email to cowboystoriespodcast at gmail.com. See you next time.